This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by our Asia editor Damon Evans and digital journalist Hamish Penman. Hello chaps. Uh, Damon, before we kick off, we're having our restrictions eased up over here. Everything's getting back open apparently. How are things over in uh, Indonesia? Uh, well, we're still masked up t- two years now to go in a supermarket. Uh, 10 days quarantine on arrival in Jakarta hotel, strict quarantine. Nobody from Britain allowed, I think, was the last I heard. So um, right. <laughs> maybe they don't like you loosening your restrictions. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's but that sounds uh, challenging, I won't lie. I mean, we're having, yeah, I think there's been a lot of humming and hawing over restrictions here. We did have kind of offshore Europe cancelled, but it looks like they might have, if they'd held out, you know, they might have, you know, managed to actually get it. But uh, I think they just took the safe decision. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 not easy for anybody, but we will, we will move on. Um, so there's only really one place to start this week. And that is with the awards from the Scott Wind Auction, where offshore wind projects with a huge kind of generating capacity of 25 gigawatts have been granted seabed space. And Hamish, you're going to kick us off with that. Yeah, big day on Monday. Um, a lot of interest from around the world, especially kind of given the, the process for how long this is, not how long it had taken, but the, the process. Scott Wind closed in July and kind of since then, everybody's been waiting, humming, hiring, speculating about what might happen. So Crown Estate Scotland have done their... Analysis. They've gone through all of their 74 bids that were submitted and they've released the list of winners. Uh, won't kind of rattle through them in, in its entirety because you can find it online and mm. give my article some nice little clicks. Um, but some of the headline ones, well, well, I think there's kind of three almost facets in which you could see the bids. Big oil, big renewables, and then some, quite interestingly, some kind of smaller new entrants to the market. So in big oil, you had BP were successful, as were Shell, as were Total Energies. In the renewables category, um, Vattenfall, uh, Orsted were successful along with the, in their bid with Falk Renewables. Um, so kind of the two big ones there. Scotch Power Renewables as well, they were a really big winner in this. Uh, and then as well in kind of these smaller players, uh, we had uh, Northland Power, who are Canadian-based. They were they won two sites, actually, uh, which was quite a big big coup for them. And then kind of others as well who made up the uh, the consortiums with, with bigger companies. Uh, so in total, it raised just shy of uh, £700 million, 699 to be precise, and uh, 24 uh, gigawatts uh, in total uh, of installed capacity. Uh, there were some big names that missed out. Equinor probably chief amongst them, given their floating credentials, especially in Scotland. Um, who has Ackeroffshore Wind were unsuccessful. Any uh, uh, ESB, France, EDF Renewables. So some really big players, but that's potentially not a bad thing with uh, with future rounds coming up again, offshore um, and licensing rounds for, for offshore oil and gas product or to decarbonize offshore oil and gas production so there is still hope on the horizon um but yeah there was a lot of uh, big reaction to this from politicians nicola sturgeon weighing in kind of across the uk everybody was pretty buoyant about this scottish renewables they were understandably happy david roger from areg he said this was a considerable opportunity for aberdeen and described it as a chance for the region's oil and gas companies to demonstrate the skills that they've built up in the industry um, on this or in the in this way in a in a green way I suppose um, interestingly the kind of GMB union they were understandably perhaps a bit skeptical given the history around offshore wind and and especially mm. with projects being built in Scotland they said that 
it was the uh, it was a test for the industry. I think was the phrase that they used um, to see whether they could do right where once they had perhaps done wrong um, <laughs> in terms of getting these projects built in Scotland, delivering these jobs that have been promised for well for the best part of a decade now. Um, and I think they're although there was a lot of upbeat optimism, I think their sentiments were probably pretty well reflected across the industry because there is still a long way to go. Um, although this is a big step on the way, there is still a lot of other metrics by which the success of Scotland will be delivered and, and those jobs is a key one of them. But I think it really was an unprecedented and arguably the most hotly anticipated offshore wind leasing round potentially in history. I mean, well, I spoke to my mum on Friday. On Monday, she said, oh, you must have had a busy day today. And she has no interest in the offshore renewables industry. So <laughs> if they're needing an endorsement for the front cover of the Scotland film that will come, there's a good one they can use. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it's an interesting point. I mean, it, yeah, you see, as soon as these awards came out, everybody was kind of vying to say, oh, yes, this is going to be a huge boon uh, to Aberdeen. The port of Cromarty Firth, um, further north, saying this is going to create a fifty-year project pipeline. I mean, I, I, I think to you can see why people are trying to position themselves as saying we're going to be kind of the catapult for projects for Scotland. I mean, clearly they they must do that from their perspective. I think, as you kind of mentioned, there is a long way now between these projects kind of being you know announced now for Scotland and them actually coming to fruition. And, uh, you know, I mean, Aberdeen, for example, I mean, it, it's not got the, the laydown space for lucrative manufacturing of turbines. I mean, the energy transition zone is looking more at kind of the balance of plants. You know, the, the, big, the big thing that people want to build in Scotland is the kind of floating wind platforms. And obviously the Cromarty Firth has been kind of highlighted as the, the best place for that um, by the Scottish Offshore Wind Energy Council. So, and then, of course, you've also got international competitors as well, right? So you've had, you know, in the past 10 years, some of our biggest projects, Sea Green, the world's largest um, offshore wind farm off Angus, you've got Murray East, those have been, you know, in the main, the big components have come from China, Belgium, and uh, and the UAE. So I, I think, you know, this is kind of the point where, you know, and I see why Nicholas Surgeon's being optimistic about it, and obviously you must be. It's a great, it's great news for Scotland to see this kind of interest. But to say, oh yes, this you know offshore workers can rest easy. There's going to be transferable jobs. To say that at this stage, um, I think is a bit premature. I mean, given the scale of the project, it's inevitable that Scotland is going to win big in the manufacturing in some sense, purely because when all of these, if you've got the 17 projects that they've announced coming to market at a relatively relatively similar time, say within kind of three or four years, that's a huge amount of work that capacity just isn't there currently in Scotland. And whether it's able to get up mm. to that capacity in the next 10 years, let's say, to deliver all of these projects from Scotland seems rather unlikely given there'll be hundreds upon hundreds of turbines going into the waters many of them with these these floating uh, foundations these concrete foundations that require so much space to to build and to to load out that I don't know, if if there's enough well spoke having spoken to a few analysts if there's enough kind of early collaboration and engagement with the supply chain they've said that there's it seems to be that there's enough work for everybody to have a bit of the pie and for everybody to to benefit from this whether that 
early engagement comes is another thing. Yeah, well, I, I spoke to um, Sir Jim McDonald, who kind of led the the SOEC reports um, for the for our January supplements, um, and he, you know, that what that report was kind of calling for was for governments and 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 you know. Uh, industry to collaborate in creating these kind of port clusters in Scotland. So it wouldn't just be Aberdeen, but Aberdeen working with Cromarty Firth, with, uh, you know, the Port of Leith, for example, and various other bits so that everyone kind of, as you say, can get a slice of the pie and um, therefore be able, you know, collaboratively to compete with international, um, you know, competitors. But I think and what, but he, what he said was, let's be clear, when it comes around to these projects, you know, getting going, there will be a competition. That's the economy we, we're in. Uh, it will be a competitive process. Now, you know, these companies have been fairly transparent in the main about, you know, the local content uh, in Scotland. And as quite a few people have kind of highlighted, um, to, to go back on that would be damaging from a reputational perspective. Um, and I, th- I, think, I think that is a pretty strong driver but I, I also, you know, I, again, you know, history has shown us. I mean, what, what did John Swinney promise in 2010? Tens of thousands of offshore wind jobs with, by 2020. We had less than 2,000 by 2020 in Scotland. So, you know, history has taught us to be, you know, a bit cautious about this. And, you know, we, local content targets are good. They're not enforceable. No. Not really. I mean, we could, they can impose some Crown Estate Scotland modest penalties, which will do nothing. Uh, so really, we're banking on the reputational angle. And then push comes to shove. If a company can then say in five years' time, well, the infrastructure is just not there in Scotland, so we're not going to build it here because we can't. If they have the opportunity to do that, that's a pretty firm out, isn't it? I think that's about as firm an out as you could get. If, you were, if, there, if, if it physically couldn't be done at that point, then, then mm. I don't really see a way around that particularly. Um, you can't just create another yard kind of there and then to 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 accommodate these projects. So I think that would be the perhaps the big one, but that will kind of take years for us to, to see what happens. The issue of what happens with this cash as well, the 700 million, I think that's a very important point and one that's kind of already been debated. We've seen unions calling for it to go to to help deliver these this transition and this, these green jobs. Interestingly, from Paul DeLeu today, the idea of a, a Scottish sovereign wealth fund, which... Which I think, is, given how much kind of attention is given to the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, it seems like an an idea that would probably get backing from quite a lot of people in Scotland, particularly from the independence camp. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, part part of me feels part, kind of when I read that, I kind of half and half. You know, at the one on the one hand, you know, people you do get you're tempted to say, well, the time for that was decades ago with oil and gas but you know if we are going to have multiple offshore wind rounds um you know scott wind rounds and maybe it's not a terrible idea although what i will say to that is you know SOEC have said well you should be using a portion of this cash to invest in these port clusters and make sure that happens um and that is kind of what we've already talked about in terms of needing to develop that supply chain rapidly um that for me is a more pressing uh, uh, issue um, that probably the government should be focused on. That's not to say they couldn't use some of the cash for uh, a wealth fund. You know, it's not a terrible idea. Um, and, you know, I suppose it's possible um, in another 20 years' time, people are going to be saying, well, why didn't you use the, the money yeah. for a, a, a wealth fund? You know, so, uh, so I mean, maybe that's where we were many decades ago with oil and gas and the, the money was used elsewhere. I don't know. But 
yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. But um, anyway, I think I think that's enough of Scotland for now. We will uh, no doubt return to this in due course. Um, but next up, we will head off uh, to Japan, uh, where the first new gas project could get up and running for the first time in thirty years. What will the future of the North Sea look like? Which technologies are needed to make the basin fit for purpose in a net-zero world? Energy Voice invites you to join us and a select group of industry leaders to scope out the future of energy development in the North Sea. The virtual event on Thursday the 27th of January will feature two sessions covering the key themes of net-zero decommissioning and transition technologies, drawing on expertise from our partners such as Schlumberger, Baker Hughes and Boston Consulting Group. Join the conversation and hear from the companies and people shaping the future of the North Sea. Register free for our future North Sea event at fns2022.co.uk. Okay, Damon, this looks like an interesting one. Tell us a bit more about what's happening over in the Far East. Yeah, we've had some exciting news this week from Impex. Uh, They're about to start an exploration campaign um, between March and July this year, which could be pivotal and could lead to the country's first offshore gas projects in more than 30 years, if successful. Um, They sound pretty upbeat. They've been doing geophysical exploration work and uh, and evaluation activities uh, about 150 kilometers offshore north of uh, Yamaguchi and 130 kilometers offshore northwest Shimani. Excuse my pronunciation. Um, uh, I have no idea about Japanese. (laughs) To our Japanese listeners. Um, I thought you handled that well. Oh, you would have got away with that if you (laughs) Excuse me. Anyway, anyway, so um, this, this, they've got funding. They've received um, approval for funding from Jogmec, a state-owned firm, at the end of December. And uh, and they said that their previous um, operations and activities over the past years have, have, have raised their expectations about the potential for oil and gas in this area and um, and, and and it's all looking quite positive really um, if successful however they're not looking to start full-scale production until around 2032 but but the interesting thing about this is Japan imports most of its gas I mean it imports most of its energy it's uh, it's it's heavily reliant on overseas supplies um, which is not good for energy security yet at the same time they are also um, they've made some ambitious climate pledges um, last October they approved um, a new plan to cut emissions by 46 percent by 2030 compared to 2013 levels and that's up from a previous commitment to cut emissions by 26%. So, so that's quite ambitious. And it's interesting that at the same time they're pushing this offshore oil and gas development. And I think it highlights um, the difficulties for the energy transition, particularly in Japan, which unlike Europe, it's not, not connected to other countries. So it can't, it can't tap on wind from the North Sea, say, like perhaps I presume the UK can get wind power from... Denmark or Norway or electricity from the continent. Um, so, so it's interesting that they are that they are pushing this, and I think it underscores the, the, their worries over energy security. Um, again, in, another interesting, or I find it interesting, as part of their energy plan to hit the emissions reduction targets by 2030, they are hoping to uh, have the power generation supplied by non-fossil fuels uh, 50, 59% um, non-fossil fuel, uh, up from 24% of the power of non-fossil fuel supply and uh, power in 2019. So, 
it, that's quite a jump and quite ambitious to achieve that yeah. in the next eight years. Yeah, that, that's 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 really that's really interesting. I mean, I, my my understanding, yeah, as 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 what you kind of outlined there was that they are, as you say, pretty reliant on fossil fuels. Despite, I mean, I, I guess just what we see anecdotally and, and through the wires is that they have been ramping up pretty well with renewables. Um, with nuclear, and clearly there was that disaster with the, the Fukushima uh, plant some years ago. But uh, yeah, as, as far as a country goes, you know, being able to end reliance on fossil fuels, this would be a, a pretty strong incentive when looking at this kind of Japan example. Yeah, and I think, that, I mean, their, their ambition is to bring back a lot more nuclear, which a lot of analysts think is un, unachievable. They've, they've only got, they've got about nine gigawatts operating now, which is about a third of their total capacity that they've bought online in the past 10 years since Fukushima. And um, one one guy, analyst I was speaking to recently, he was like, well, I don't see what's going to change in the next 10 years that they'll be able to to ramp up nuclear more than they have in the past 10 years. It, it's quite complicated socially and politically to achieve the, the restart of the nuclear reactors. They've done well with solar. They've developed a lot of solar, but they don't have a lot of land mass in Japan. So there's a, a limit to how far they can go there. There's a lot of wind potential. Um, but again, that's very early days and, and it's unclear if the Japanese government has, has the commitment behind that. I think they've just had their first offshore wind round and uh, Mitsubishi won everything, much to uh, Orsted's uh, disappointment. Um, <laughs> but hopefully their groundwork, they did a lot of work, Orsted, I think, on building local relationships. So hopefully they'll be well placed for the next round. And um, yeah, so it looks like they're still going to need oil and gas and still going to, you know, they're they were the world's biggest LNG importer until last year when China overtook them. So gas is still very much going to be a big feature of the of their energy, energy mix for the next decade, I think. I know Equinor were quite interested in um, in opportunities there as well. They, I think they signed a, a partnership with JERA, I think it was, uh, to explore offshore wind opportunities in Japan. So it seems like the appetite is definitely there on a, on a global scale. But I suppose how do you tie it? that's over in the next kind of decade or so before these projects actually come to fruition and, and, and these licensing rounds become become more frequent. So certainly one an interesting one to crack or a difficult one to crack. With with the oil and gas perspective, uh, Damon, what, what the, the, the timeline is is interesting. So they're they're kind of at all the kind of discovery point now potentially another decade before they could bring this online. That that seems an awful a uh, time frame, a very long time frame for them to do it, especially if there's this reliance on fossil fuels, you'd think so it would expedite it. Yeah, baffles me too. I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure. <laughs> you would think they would, would accelerate it. 2032, so, you know, they're, they're supposed to be, like, significantly cutting down on gas by then. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, they've only got five onshore gas projects in their history. They've got one offshore gas project ever and that was last i think came online in 1990 so they don't have a strong history in the upstream sector there's not been a lot of success they've been they've been looking at exploring methane hydrates but i think they're really deep down and i think i don't i don't think that's particularly technically or commercially feasible um you know, so it's a nice headline grabber. Japan is a first offshore gas project in more than 30 years, but we'll, we'll have to see what happens over the next few months and, uh, and revisit it in July, I think. 
and uh, maybe we should take some bets. Oh my gosh, the Japanese gas sweeper is on the way in the voice <laughs> towers. Let's have it. Uh, okay, well, well, we'll watch that with interest. And uh, to the 1.08% of our listeners who are in Japan, I apologize for Damon's pronunciations. Um, next up, get your smart clothes on, shine your shoes, because we are back in court. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. So in what I don't think was a massive surprise, but we have covered the story over the course of things, and damn it, we're, we're going to see it through. Um, a high court judge has dismissed a legal claim that the UK government has been acting effectively unlawfully in its support of North Sea oil and gas extraction. I'll try not to make this as dry as it might sound, um, but just bear with me. I'll explain and hopefully we can dig in. So this is a campaign from the Paid to Pollute environmental group. They're backed by the likes of Uplift, Greenpeace and others. And they sought this ruling, which said that the UK government's and the oil and gas authority, as I say, were acting unlawfully because the OGA's strategy to maximise economic recovery in the North Sea, they claimed, was not economic to the UK taxpayer and was in conflict with another one of their goals, which is obviously to reach net zero. So they argued that because the strategy estimates what's economically recoverable on a pre-tax basis, they are effectively ignoring the many millions of pounds in tax rebates which are granted to these North Sea oil companies for decommissioning. And that has become a bit of a kind of growing bone of contention as the exchequers had to pay out more and more of these decommissioning rebates because obviously we're now getting to the end of the life of many of these older oil platforms and we're seeing more monies being used to shut them down, obviously. Essentially, uh, the judge uh, this week dismissed that on both fronts. Um, she put on record that these tax rebates are simply repayment of a portion of tax that these companies have paid in the past. Please bear with me. Uh, these are not subsidies, which some have claimed, tax rebates, not something that's new in the world of business. The long-term effect of that, she said, is the worst case position for the taxpayer, which is the main thing the regulator should be concerned with anyway, is a tax neutral position, not a loss. And they shouldn't look at it as paid to pollute did in isolation in a given year. For example, there has been, it's been estimated that these rebates could cost the Treasury in or around £24 billion in coming years. That's a lot of money. But within the context of that, more than £350 billion has already been paid by the oil and gas industry to the UK over the course of the industry's life, if that makes sense. So it's only a, it's only a fraction of that big, big figure. So yeah, so the judge said to look at that in isolation was nonsensical and effectively throughout the argument on that basis. And then on the net zero side of things, she said that maximizing economic recovery, that's to do with maximizing value, not necessarily to do with maximizing the amount of volumes of oil and gas in totality. So it's about what you can economically recover. 
So that they all also kind of pointed to the OGA's work, scrutiny of, of licenses. The obviously there's a lot of new climate checkpoints going to be coming in with the North Sea transition deal. Effectively agreed that the work that the OGA is doing is contributing to the UK's net zero plans. So that was kind of thrown out on that basis too. So what the campaigners therefore then said is, you know, well, we, we put this on public record now. We achieved what we set out to do. We shone a light on the decom rebates. Um, and, you know, personally, I, I think the judge fairly eviscerated their arguments. And I'd be surprised if they go through a costly appeal after having that happen in this way. And, you know, I mean, from a legislator's perspective, do you go through a lengthy review, the Wood Review in this case, appoint an independent expert regulator just for the court to then decide its remit later? I'm not sure you do. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't expect this to be the end of litigation in oil and gas, um, but it kind of closes the chapter in this particular one. And maybe what's interesting to note is this is kind of the third fairly high-profile case in, I think, since 2019, certainly in the past couple of years anyway, that we've had a run of kind of bad luck for these protesters. They had they had hoped to stop production from the Ithaca BP Vorlick field in the North Sea through uh, through the courts. Um, they also got you know fined heavily, and, and Greenpeace is one of their directors, narrowly avoided jail over a, a rig protest over the same kind of field in 2019. And now we have this. So it's not a great run of luck for them. I, I don't know whether they were really expecting to win uh, rather than simply raise the profile of the case. But equally, you know, does a run of losses, if not dissuade them entirely, perhaps, I don't know, do, do we think that would encourage NGOs to maybe look at a different tactic rather than try to make their case in the courts, given the, the losses we've seen? I mean, if the if the primary objective of this court case was to shine a light on oil and gas subsidies, then it's one hell of an expensive way of doing it. <laughs> I mean, the only the only people that are really winning out of this are the lawyers who are laughing all the way to the bank. Um, and I, I did I found their quote quite interesting in the piece where they said that um, although the court may not have agreed with with our case, um, the cost of subsidising oil and gas production are now a matter of the public record. I didn't particularly understand that given that the public record now says that the government aren't subsidizing oil and gas it's a business transaction that exists in any other sector as well it kind of seems to defeat the purpose rather am i alone in that no uh, i think we're in i think i think we're in uh, a period of time now where people will say their own version of the truth <laughs> post truth uh, no what the truth is <laughs> uh yeah uh, well I, I i think there is an element of that and <clears throat> You know, without trying to totally um, dismiss them, um, and you can see in isolation when you see these figures in terms of the millions of pounds being paid out to these oil companies, you, you can see why a layman's, you know, somebody who's not affiliated with the industry could think, you know, well, what's going on there? Why are you paying out these oil companies? Um you know, I, I, what you have to realize is, you know, this is effectively a loan that's being repaid, you know, from back in the heyday of North Sea Oil when these companies were dishing out these huge amounts of, of, of taxes. And we also have ring fence tax specifically for oil and gas too. So yeah, it, it's as you say, Hamish, a, a business transaction. I, I think there's also an element of perhaps people not really wanting to 
have a discussion here um, and just trying to um, hammer home, you know, what their version of events are and, you know, that what they were trying to achieve, I suppose, was was to get some sort of public record saying, oh, we should subsidise oil and gas. They, they've, they've not done that, but they are trying to argue that they have. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I don't think even this will stop. Or perhaps it will, I don't know. But it seems unlikely that, you know, the next time that a big story about Shell not paying any taxes in the UK comes up, I don't think this is going to be used as necessarily a point of reference. I think we're still going to get big... Uh, big publications. I'm not going to name them, but you know, publications with good business journalists who should know better. Um, uh, still grabbing the headlines um, with that. Uh, I mean, I think I think the Shell's UK country boss at one point or the other recently pointed to one of these articles and said, "You know, that's absolutely right. We didn't pay X, Y, and Z this year, but you know, the point of this is to look at it not in isolation, but over the course of." The life of our fifty-year business here in the UK, uh, you know, we've paid X X amount, and basically the deal was when it came to decommissioning, with the regime we have in the UK, there would be rebates. So, yeah, it's it, it it's not something that's well understood, partially because it is so complicated. <laughs> I'm not sure I've entirely I've explained it correctly. And please do write in, listener, if I haven't. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a really complicated issue. It's not one that you can get across easily. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you obviously had a very easy headline saying, you know, big oil doesn't pay money uh, to the to the to the treasury this year. So uh, a complicated one. Is it going to prevent further court litigation? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's. I think it's. You know. I think. I think they'll take. I think they will continue to take their cases to the court as and when. As you say, Hamish, it is an expensive way of doing things, but these are very well funded. You know, Greenpeace is not short of cash, and. Maybe one, and we were talking about this the other day, maybe one notable exception, if you look beyond the UK, we had, uh, I think it's the Netherlands, Friends of the Earth equivalent, um, obviously imposing these uh, climate change targets on Shell in, in a Netherlands court. So I suppose that kind of shows that, you know, you can be successful um, if you make the right case. Um, Damon, I want to get your thoughts on this. How would how would someone do in, a, in, in court litigation against... Um, companies in, in Far East Asia if they didn't um, like what they were doing? Well, first of all, I mean, it all sounds rather complicated to me. I, it's the first time hearing this. And, um, well, it sounds like the, the activists got egg on their face. Am, am I correct? Yeah, that would be a good summation of it, yeah. But, yeah, in, in Asia, I think, I mean, you, talk, you talked about subsidies and subsidizing oil and gas. And what was going through my head was, so to use Indonesia as a reference where I'm sitting, you know, the government does subsidize or, you know, the petrol at the pump is heavily subsidized. Um, they they pay a lot of money on a, on a fuel bill because people would be up in arms if the price shot up. And I think this is the same in other, you know, Malaysia as well, that it, it is heavily subsidized. Regarding court cases, I, you know, it varies in Southeast Asia. Some countries like, obviously in Myanmar, you wouldn't get um, people, you know, people can't take the government to court um in place like thailand you do get renewable energy come you know you get coal companies get, being taken to court there and and that has encouraged uh, renewable energy development there so it's a bit more liberal there but um yeah i don't know we don't have mm. that kind of thing it's more like government more like oil companies taking governments to court for screwing stealing them out of taxes or doing them over it's kind <laughs> of it's kind of the other way around normally <laughs> 
the, in my experience, what I've reported on. Um, and Shell again, actually, I think Shell and Chevron were screwed over by the Philippines government on the Malampaya field and to do with taxes, and they, they that went to international arbitration. And and we've got Chevron, they were in international arbitration with the government of Thailand over decommissioning liabilities in in the Gulf of Thailand. So um, yeah, kind of different different type of court cases. No activists. Maybe they could get jobs over here. You could, you could <laughs> like send the actors. <laughs> yeah, get a get a base set up. See how they get on. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, okay, well, I think we will park that uh, there for now. Who knows when we'll be back in court? I'm sure it won't be too long. Um, but that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. And thank you, Damon and Hamish, for joining me. I've been Elsa Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.